Hello and welcome to 90th Percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. This is a Baseball America podcast. Since I joined the team over here at Baseball America, I've been trying to spend more and more of my time speaking with folks on the player development side of the game, pitching coaches, dev coordinators, etc. And I thought, what better way to sort of bring this study and, and, and these conversations that I'm having behind the scenes to the forefront by recording it in podcast form. So each week, I'm going to sit down with a different personality from the player development or coaching side of baseball, maybe on the professional side, potentially on the amateur side, uh, and dig in deep, learn a little bit about their background, how they got into coaching, and sort of, you know, what are the main pillars of, you know, their beliefs, their training systems, their models, their approaches to training athletes for baseball. Uh, this week, we were joined by Dr. Tom House, uh, obviously very famous for very uh, a multitude of reasons, uh, one of which is, is of course, coaching um, the Texas Rangers in the 80s and early 90s with Nolan Ryan, uh, also being a very famous quarterbacks coach uh, for Tom Brady, Drew Brees, among several others, uh, and having just brought a lot of technology to the forefront uh, in his early days coaching with the San Diego baseball school. So... We'll sit down with Dr. House, learn a little bit about his background, how he got to where he is, and the sort of things that he believes athletes really need to focus on. Hopefully it'll be a spirited conversation, and I hope that you join me each week. All right, and I want to welcome our inaugural guest onto the podcast. That is uh, none other than the world-famous uh, Dr. Tom House. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. House. Uh, there's so many different ways that I could introduce you. And it was funny kind of going through your career and, you know, all the people and great players and, 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 you know, programs that you've been involved with. And I kind of felt like it's probably best just to hand it over to you and allow yourself to introduce yourself and all the different things that you've obviously, you know, been involved with and are currently involved with. Well, first of all, Jeff, I, I'm really, you know, thrilled to be on uh, and using, you know, world famous, and my name in the same sentence is probably a little bit of a stretch. Infamous might work out okay. And I am the world's greatest expert on what doesn't work if that sets things up. But if you ask me in a nutshell to describe um, who I am and where I am and how that journey took place, I'm basically just um, a sports fan coach that has been trying to survive by being the most avid learner in the space. So, and I'm, we're still there. I've done some really good stuff. I've done some really crazy stuff, but I, you know, I can look you in the face, look you in the eye right now and tell you that I think the best is yet to come. That's tremendous. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, you were a former MLB player, a pitcher, uh, in the major leagues, uh, you know, I think your sort of most, I'll say, famous moment was, of course, uh, catching, you know, the record-breaking home run uh, from Hank Aaron. And, you know, I know you've spoken a little bit as well about your relationship with him. And I'll, I'll also say, you know, um, I think I was first familiar with you as, you know, growing up as a big baseball fan and a huge Nolan Ryan fan. I mean, he's my all-time favorite athlete in any sport. Um, my oldest son is named Nolan for that reason. Excuse me, my youngest son is named Nolan for that reason. And uh, and then of course I grew up about 20 minutes away from Foxborough Stadium. So I'm also like you know 
40 years old and squarely grew up, you know, in the Tom Brady era uh, and immersed in that. So, you know, you're obviously also very famous for your work um, with quarterbacks, you know, other than Tom Brady, Drew Brees and and obviously several others. Um, but I'm really interested to sort of get into here how you got into coaching. You know, your your major league career is coming to an end, the end of the 70s, and you know, you sort of make this shift. And we'll talk about some of the other things that you've you've gotten into and you know, techniques, et cetera, that you've developed. But I'm really interested to what brought you into it and sort of what the story was there. Well, that's a great that's a great question. And I'd like to say it was well thought out and plotted and everything went perfectly. But the bottom line was, while I was still playing uh, and living in the offseason here in San Diego, I got involved in the San Diego School of Baseball with names um, many of your listeners won't recognize. Maybe they will. Bob Skinner, Roger excuse me, Roger Craig and Bob Cluck. They were the three uh, founders of the San Diego School of Baseball. And we put together a group that ended up, Tony Gwynn was in it, Alan Trammell, myself, Brent Strom. And we just started coaching kids on weekends for a couple of years. And then we actually got a facility and started doing it uh, in the off season from eight in the morning till 10, 10 o'clock at night. And by the time I sold my interest in the San Diego School of Baseball, um, the business had gone from about 50 kids and losing 2,500 bucks to actually accessing and being in front of between 7,500 and 8,000 kids and having the business worth about a million bucks. So that was going on separate of my playing career. When I got released as a player, I went home and pouted for a couple months and Bob Cluck um, called me and not, not only was he founder of the San Diego School of Baseball, but he at that time was the scouting director for the Houston Astros. And he said, Halsey, um, I don't know what you're doing with your life or whatever, but would you like to be a half season uh, rookie pitching coach. And before that last word came out of his mouth, I was on a plane down to Sarasota, Florida. So that's what it boiled down to. It was a, a transition from playing and wondering at what I was going to do with my life to being a coach. And, and obviously I had no clue what that meant either. Um, but when I got down into the rookie ball situation, and saw what it was all about. It wasn't playing, but it was pretty close. And I got huge satisfaction out of working with the younger pitchers. But I also was very frustrated because I didn't have a lot of answers. Things that, um, that I was taught uh, in that crease between old school and new school Technology was starting to take over, high-speed motion analysis, force plates. And I realized that if I wanted to be the, the best coach that I could be, Jeff, that I was going to have to, you know, add to my resume besides just being a big league pitcher. So I went back to school. Uh, we bought a motion analysis system. Um, 
started doing research and um, a lot of dead ends. Uh, I remember we captured um, pitchers, um, javelin throwers, infielders, hitters. We, we ca captured any athlete we could and stood there and looked at the screen and didn't even know what we were looking at. We had the motion analysis, but what the heck does it, and then finally things started appearing and the, the bottom line was with that beginning and the transition from playing to actually coaching was smoother than I thought it would be, but frustrating because I always, with a lot of stuff, and I don't know if you have kids or have ever been involved with instruction, sometimes you have a little weird feeling in your stomach about, I hope what I'm teaching is actually true. And uh, I still have that feeling about some things, but less and less. Did that make sense, what I just said? No, absolutely. And I have I have three kids, so believe me, I, I feel yeah, the so feeling you know. all yeah. day long. And they're between 11 and 6 right now. So I can very yeah. much relate to that. And I've done a little bit of coaching, you know, baseball side and, and different sports as well. So and I totally relate to that. They are in the perfect window of trainability. Their, their first window of learning is all about the nervous system. So that's, that's believe it or not, even though I work with Hall of Famers and mm. superstars, my favorite age group is that 8 to 12-year-old group, male and female. So I'm kind of jealous that you've got kids underneath your roof at that, that perfect age. Yep. As soon as my, my daughter just uh, just broke her collarbone about six oh, weeks back. Boy. So, yeah. So as soon as she gets back from that, base, so softball for her will start up again. Okay. So, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun for sure. But backing up a little bit, you know, and we got into, you know, some of the things that you were, were on very early. And, and maybe that's the answer to this question, but I still want to ask, in that initial sort of period of, of coaching, you know, whether it was with the San Diego School of Baseball, you know, or with the Astros, what, what, were, what were some of the lessons that you initially sort of took away? Because I'm sure that there were things that, as you said, probably slapped you in the face a little bit, just in terms of that transition from player to coach. That, that also is a very perceptive question. Um, there were holes in my program and my process as an instructor. I knew what worked for me, but not everybody in baseball was a five foot, nine out, nine inch, 83 mile an hour curveball guy. So, and I couldn't find answers. I would ask questions and I couldn't get answers that I would believe in or actually teach from. So that dissonance or whatever the magic word is caused me to start looking for ways to better what I knew worked for me, but was looking to be able to have it work for a large number of pitchers. In other words, I knew there were like a million pitchers out there, but finding the one set of rules that could be personally adapted to each athlete I worked with. And that is the quest that I'm still on today. Absolutely. And that's a that's a tremendous answer. Um, and I think, you know, where I want to go next is what what were some of we'll say because you say I, th I thought that something that you said when you said you, you were sort of in that wrinkle between old school and new school you yeah. sat there. So you were sort of in a prime position in time to sort of challenge some of the status quo and maybe some ideas, maybe like you said, as you have been taught um, 
and some of the conformity that might have been in procedures at that point. So I'm interested to learn a little bit about what were some of the early things that you really challenged that maybe you received pushback on? I, I did. And I didn't just receive pushback. I was kind of vilified at times for not going with baseball's way. This is the way they've done it for 70 years. Why should we do any change? But as we started doing the research and started seeing things like motion analysis, for example, the human eye is very comfortable at seeing movement at about 40 frames a second. And when we got started analyzing pictures, there were movements in a pitcher's delivery that were happening at 1 250th of a second. And because our eyes can't see 1 250th of a second, we were teaching from what our eyes were giving our brain, and it wasn't true. For example, pulling your glove towards your chest. And um, the let me, let me take a little sidebar real quick. For the people that are listening, if you watch a car commercial on television, the car is going 70 miles an hour, but the wheels look like they're going backwards. And the reason the wheels look like they're going backwards is because the camera is only giving you 40 frames a second. It doesn't do it doesn't do any good to do a commercial on TV at 250 frames a second because the, the human eye is not going to relate to it anyway. So um, when we started seeing that, I started realizing that what we thought was pure information was just guess. And now we had some science to measure and quantify. Um, when I started putting it out there, there was a lot of people that didn't, didn't want to hear it. The, the greatest right that you and I have is the right to change. But one of the hardest things in our lives is to actually change. And to accomplish that change, there has to be um, a compelling reason. And when I tried to be the compelling reason, it was accepted by some, but rejected by many. And especially since we were throwing a football, and especially since we started doing actual weight training, heavy weights, and doing force plate analysis and wireless EMG, the average good coach, someone that had dedicated their life to the game, was all his, a lot of his stuff was being invalidated. So to use words, I think I mentioned, it was kind of frustrating to them. And because it was frustrating to them, they kind of, I won't say made fun of me, but they weren't buying into everything. But I'm also going to give baseball credit. Um, we kept chipping away. And at the last ABCA, two weeks ago, for the first time in my life, um, in my coaching life, I've seen more pitching coaches on the science side than on the good old boy side. And I think that is huge progress Agreed. to my mind. Agreed. And, and as you were, you know, taking this approach and, you know, you're doing this motion analysis, what year is this, by the way? Yeah, we started, I, I got an aerial system up at Cote de Casa from Gideon Aerial, and um, I'm drawing a blank on the, the, the Vic Braden's 
Tennis Academy. Basically moved it down, took it on the road with me. Um, when I was here in San Diego, set it up at our, um, our academy uh, down in uh, downtown San Diego. Mm-hmm. And just, again, just captured data and try, trying to come up with measurables that had deliverables that were defendable. And that probably is the, the biggest issue. A lot of coaches just taught what they were taught themselves or in their opinion, what they thought they saw with their eyes. When we started putting hard, cold science in front of them, beginning with our first motion analysis in 86, here it is, um, measured, quantified, science-based, with confidence intervals and standard deviations. And initially, nobody in baseball wanted to hear that. But now, thanks to analytics and you you young people, um, that's not as scary as it used to be. So even some of the older coaches, there's not many coaches left that are my age, but the ones that are hanging out and doing a good job, the Dusty Bakers and the, the, the coaches in their 70s that have stayed current and can actually communicate with this bright young group of this bright young generation of coaches that are coming through. Um, I think baseball's on the right track. Agree. And it's, it's something that, you know, over the last couple of years, I've really embraced where I had typically kind of come at it from more of, you know, a scouting background, having grown up, you know, going to games in the Cape Cod league and, you know, coaches that were scouts and that sort of thing. Um, so it's something that I really embraced funny enough during the pandemic. And I, I made it an, an effort to learn more and I'm still not great. Learn more about mechanics, learn more about pitch motion and, and how it's captured and how it you know translates to, you know, actual results and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I a hundred percent agree with you there. Um, and I guess, you know, what I'm wondering too is were any of these systems, what were they being used for outside of this? Were, were there other sports that were already sort of ahead of the curve in terms of utilizing this kind of stuff? You mentioned a tennis academy, so I was Yeah, wondering. tennis was on top of it. Track and field, obviously. Yeah. Was see technology in track and field was has been accepted for 50 years. Um, they didn't feel like it was necessary in baseball. But the combination of what was going on on the outside and what was going on on the inner circle of baseball, it took a while, but it's definitely moving in the right direction. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, no sweat at all. Um, so around this time, not too far after you're you know, starting to do this stuff, you got, you got a job as a pitching coach at, you know, with the Texas Rangers right. level. Um, I believe you know, Nolan Ryan a few years into your tenure well, you've, you've really done your homework. Uh, ask, <laughs> ask me if I'm impressed. Yes, I am. I, I try to. you got to be prepared, you know. Like yeah, I said, yeah. I'm a disciple of Tom Brady, so. Good. You're making make this. sure I, I hold up that, uh, that end of the bargain. Yeah, just so you know, you're making this very easy for me. Good. So how it worked out that way, I was, when Bob Cluck brought me on as the rookie pitching coach for the Astros, I spent that summer down in Sarasota, the following spring training, he made me a rover. Um, so I basically traveled around um, the country. And then um, 
Bob took a job with the San Diego Padres and brought me with him and put me as the pitching coach in Las Vegas, Nevada with the San Diego Padres. And we had a couple of really good years there. And 1984 is when they went to the World Series. Padres went to World Series against Detroit Tigers. And I got called up to participate and help out because a lot of the pitchers that were in the big leagues had gone through me in the minor leagues. And then that offseason, um, the Texas Rangers called and said, would you like to interview for the pitching coach's job? And I did, and that's when Bobby Valentine hired me. And the fact that Bobby Valentine and Tom Grieve were on exactly the same page I was about, let's see if we can bring baseball into the 21st century. And that was the, what year was, anyway, it was, I was with the Rangers for nine years after that hiring. And they allowed us, to continue our motion capture with the uh, aerial system. We got force plates, we got wireless EMG. We were able to do nutrition. We had testing for male emotional. And I don't know if I've mentioned it earlier, I, I kept going to school and I got my PhD in um, basically performance psychology. I went to Loma Linda University and got uh, a nutrition degree, nutrition and sleep. And then I had the other stuff, um, you know, basically coming from my time at school at USC. So we had academics, we had medical, and we had on field, all kind of integrating into a teach that has been out there. Um, again, kind of unaccepted to starting to start with, but is now almost mainstream. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that stuff was obviously, you know, um, later adapted. And I think probably over the last 30 years is, you know, grown significantly in terms of, you know, popularity. And, and as you've said yourself, you know, only, you know, a short period ago at, you know, ABCA this year and, you know, sort of seeing how it's taken over and, and, and changed so much. Um, I wanted to actually ask you, um, did you did you play with Bobby Valentin at USC while you were there? It was, uh, my, my wife just asked this because Bobby sent me his new book. Yeah. Um, I met Bobby at USC. I was, I didn't get the, uh, he came in on a visit and he eventually signed, uh, you know, he was going to go play football there. Mm -hmm. But the Dodgers obviously signed him before he had a chance for the season to start. But yeah. he took classes. I met Bobby when he was an incoming freshman. And then I had probably two or three times run across him in spring training environments and in what do they call after season when they go to instructional league. So I had seen him and knew of him. And uh, as it worked out, his GM, Tom Grieve, was best friends with Sandy Johnson, a scouting director who was best friends with Bob Cluck. Can you kind of see how the interview took yeah, place? Exactly. And they, they brought me in and just basically said, are you prepared to take a shot at changing the way coaching takes place in baseball? I said, I'm, I'm your guy. Uh, I, can, I can get booed by any number of people for trying to be different. And they were very supportive with all the new stuff that we did. 
And I'd like to say the rest is history. Um, it wasn't, it, it's a, you know, we had good and bad and indifferent, but the learning curve while steep was very productive. And again, that's why you and I are talking right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, um, you know, one pitcher that you had the opportunity to work with there, uh, one of my all-time favorites, one of the all-time greats, Nolan Ryan. Right. Uh, and it seems like just from, you know, having done some research ahead of time, um, Ryan seemed to really embrace a lot of your techniques and had actually, you know, mentioned you in his Hall of Fame speech. So I'm interested to learn what he improved upon, because at this point, you know, he had already had this, you know, famous long career that oh, yeah, you're right he, he was going to be a hall of famer before he even came to the Texas exactly. rangers that that is that's a given but again it's funny how the degrees of separation in baseball works um bobby valentine had played with nolan in the in the angel organization for two or three years and i'd gotten to know nolan when i was working for the astros with bob cluck and through a guy, Gene Coleman, who was the Astro conditioning coach. And I got to sit in as a minor league instructor and work with and or see um, Nolan do, go about his daily activities. So I knew of him and about him. And then when he became a free agent, when the Astros um, decided they had no interest in him, he, he really came to the Texas Rangers for two reasons obviously new information, but the fact that he was really a family man and he was looking for an environment where his kids could come to the ballpark with him, his, his wife could go on road trips, and Tom Grieve and Bobby Valentine said, yes, we'd already been doing it anyway. In fact, I had my, my son there. So the combination of the family thing and the fact that Nolan knew we were doing some things different he came for one year and ended up pitching for almost nine more. And he was a Hall of Fame pitcher before, but a legendary Hall of Fame pitcher after. He was actually a better pitcher statistically from age 39 to 47 than he was from age 19 to age 39. So it was a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and he became a friend um, as well as an athlete and probably was a guinea pig for a lot of things that I wouldn't have been able to get done except for the fact that he bought into it. Throwing the football, for example, was something that was kind of frowned on until Nolan started throwing it and then it was okay. And having a superstar buy into something that was a little controversial, um, gave credibility to what we were doing while it actually made him a little better also. Best of both worlds. Sure. And and I'll, I actually want to, that was what my next question was, is it's sort of an iconic picture, I think, for people my age. It was like on an upper deck card. I can remember that. As a, good job. It is. I think I might even had a poster of Nolan Ryan throwing a football, throwing football. Like in his right. Rangers, you know, the satin, you know, warm-up coat and um, – and now, you know, every summer I'm, I'm down working the Cape Cod League, one of my favorite places to go. And you'll see a, a lot of these teams, you know, in between, um, you know, BP and, and the game, a lot of these guys are in the bullpen warming up, throwing the football. So it's yeah. become, you know, commonplace. Yeah. Um, 
and I think this kind of goes back a little bit to some of the other stuff you said, but you've studied a lot of different types of throwing motions. And what was sort of the commonalities that you sort of figured out between the two that it was like there's not a tremendous amount of difference? There, you got it right. It's, it's amazing how many similarities there are. There's a little bit different timing because it's on flat ground and quarterbacks don't have all day to lift and stride down a hill. So the timing, you have to get one of their feet in stride length to in 0.17 seconds. And then energy goes from transfer to translation. And from there on out, it's virtually the same as a pitcher. After foot strike, it's 0.25 into release point. The only difference between throwing a football and throwing a baseball is not arm action or arm path. It's because it's, the football is three times as heavy, the arm, um, the, the distance the arm travels is about two thirds less. In other words, it looks like a quarterback short arms the ball, but he, he isn't doing that. It's just because the football weighs three times what a baseball does, but it's the same mechanics, um, the same kinematic sequencing, the same balance and posture, front side, all the things that pitchers do. Quarterbacks do the same thing, but on flat ground in less time. So I think that's probably a perfect segue uh, to ask a little bit about how you got into working with quarterbacks and who were the first quarterbacks that you started to work with on the football side? Because I, I mentioned Brady, I mentioned Breeze. I think I looked at the list last night. There's like another like, 15 to 20, you know, starting yeah. NFL quarterbacks that you've worked with. Um, um, here's how it happened. Remember I told you we were capturing anybody that would allow us to film them. Sure. So we had in the computer a model that included Montana, Marino, um, Burline, Todd Marinovich. Remember the robo quarterback? Are you old enough to remember that? Yeah. Left hand. No, I do remember. We had about six to ten. Yeah, we had about six to ten NFL quarterbacks that were in there that we really weren't paying a whole lot of attention to trying to determine a, an efficient model. And then Cam Cameron, who was the offensive coordinator with the San Diego Chargers in whatever year it was, lived, lived down the street from me. And he had kids that played baseball. So because his kid played, played baseball, he actually came and watched us working with his two older boys and um, him watching us working and him being an offensive coordinator mm -hmm. and a, a quarterback coach himself, he said, boy, there's a lot of things that are similar. And that was really cool and nice. But as, as precipitous as it may sound, that was the, the season that Drew Brees uh, hurt his shoulder in the last game of the season. Mm -hmm. And we sent him to Dr. Andrews, Dr. Andrews, you know, surgically repaired his shoulder, called me and said his shoulder is repaired, but I don't think he's going to ever be able to throw a football in the NFL again. Well, as it turned out, uh, Cam Cameron said, um, would you mind working with Drew? And Drew and I in that off season after his surgery worked virtually every day doing things we'd never done before. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. He, um, ended up, he was 
the Dolphins said, no, thank you. You went to the Saints. They said, thank you very much. And the rest is history. Well, because Drew did well and was healthy and performing well, that quarterback fraternity is really a small little fraternity. And then pretty soon I've got other quarterbacks showing up. And I think it's out there on one of the YouTube, whatever, on any given day, because of Drew Brees, I would have a Brady, I would have um, Carson Palmer, I would have uh, uh, Alex Smith. I have five or six sure. buddies of his all working right along with our pitchers. And again, the rest is history. We started instead of the NPA, um, and baseball only, we had the NPA and 3D QB, which is still an entity up in Orange County, and that's where all the quarterbacks go. Mm-hmm. Um, same basic information, s- same everything, but a, a, actually a quarterback staff coaching pure quarterback. Wow. And, you know, obviously, uh, as we've mentioned, you know, um, you had the opportunity to, to work with with Tom Brady, um, you're sort of mentioned as his throwing guru or, uh, you know, a member of his, of his inner circle. Um, so I guess with him in the news right now, and I won't ask any specific questions, but sort of what is, what is, what has it been like to, to work with him and, and just be around, I guess, you know, that sort of famous work ethic and mentality, not to say you haven't been around a lot of those guys, but. Well, I'm sure you've read that, um, for about six years, he's been telling people he's going to play till he's 45. Well, we had proved that with Nolan Ryan. Yeah. That if you follow certain processes, protocols, there's no reason you can't do at age 45 what you did at age 25. So that's been out there for people to look at for six, seven years. Hmm. The When you're working with a superstar like a Brady or a Breeze or a Nolan Ryan or um, a Phil Mickelson, you mentioned it. They, they're trying to get 1% better every day. And I, I've kind of observed there's four things that are consistent with all these elite Hall of Fame performers. They, they have faith. They have friendship. They have family and they have football as an affiliation. And they all manage those four pieces of their life and their basically their on and off the field uh, existence with a genuine passion and love for the game. And they have fun doing it. What it, it becomes the power of play and I'm, probably taking a little bit of a detour on you here, but I'm going to give you the consistencies I I see with these superstars. They're Hall of Fame 12-year-olds is what they are. They they have the same approach to the game, fun and enjoyment-wise, even if they're working their rear ends off, as a 12-year-old does playing Little League ball or Pop Warner football. That passion for the game and that enjoyment that they have is the power of play and the value of competing in a sport. So 
while I, I believe we have really helped them extend their careers with their mechanics, their strength, their male emotional and their nutrition and sleep for recovery, I know we've helped them there, but they've also helped us to democratize what they've been working on for their whole careers and give that information and instruction to a mom and a dad of an 11 year old in the backyard if they have a cell phone. And that's kind of, you know, the elite are the elite Mm -hmm. and probably anybody could help them, you know, be what they are while they get in the hall of fame. It trickles down to the numbers that are out there. What are smart people tell us there's 120 million 13 and younger um, boy and girl athletes out there, 80% of which will, they'll quit playing before the age of 14. What my vision is, is there's always going to be the elite superstars, but in that group that would, you know, go home because they weren't getting good instruction, they were getting hurt, they weren't having fun. We're trying to democratize and give a larger number of youngsters a chance to compete longer. If we can get them to play a sport through high school, they're better human beings, they're healthier, they understand adversity, and um, they aren't quite as entitled. They have empathy for their teammates. In other words, in my opinion, I think sports is the one thing that no matter what your political affiliation, no matter what your religion, no matter what the color of your skin is, everybody can kind of agree that sports are fun. Yeah. So, and fun with a purpose. So that's where this, in my golden years, I want to take all the blessings that I've got up to this point in time and kind of democratize them and put them up, put it out there so that a mom and a dad or a young coach with a little league team can get the same efficacy of information and instruction that our hall of famers get. And that's what this mustard app, I don't know if you were going to go there. Yeah. That's that's for me is the next generation in my life is to put all that great technology that's been out there into an app that you can get on a cell phone for free and help your kids find the same thing that I mentioned earlier, family, faith, friends, and affiliation with their sport and their team. Yeah. And I, you know, I think one of the interesting approaches to that too, and just in general, and something I think you had, you'd, you'd mentioned as well is, um, you know, how a lot of these greats and a lot of these athletes, you know, they learn the lesson that it's not about necessarily competing against this person or that person, but against yourself each day and making incremental improvements. And that's actually where I was going to go was sort of asking, you know, how, um, you know, team mustard in the app can, can sort of work uh, and focuses on that with, with a lot of these young athletes, you said, you know, they may not be a guy that's going to get a college scholarship, but you know, there's a lack of places for people who like to play sports and still want to improve and continue to play after age 13, 14, um, you know, as it becomes travel in high school and that sort of thing. So yeah, they specialize and they get worried about outcome. And, you know, we live in an outcome world. We're not going to take that away. The, the, you know, if you get straight A's, you go to a better school. 
if you win a lot of games, you got a chance to, to play on a better team or go to a better college. But the bottom line is, if, if you can understand the concept that I'm never going to be a Tom Seaver, but I can be the best Tom House I can be. So the, the actual app itself, Mustard, um, allows these youngsters to figure out how they can be the best they can be. We're in the process. We can measure their mechanics. I mean, I'm really proud of that. We've got drills to fix their inefficiencies of movement. They can measure strength. They've got drills to make themselves functionally strong. We actually have a thing called the focus band where we can actually see what's going on inside of an athlete's head and practice in competition mm. in real time and measure that also for stress and anxieties and focus and attention span. All this science, basically boiling it down to its Occam's razor. The simplest solution is here's a cell phone with an app that you can give your child or somebody that you're coaching on a little league team, the exact same thing that Tom Brady, Nolan Ryan, Bill Mickelson have gotten in their career. And that for me is the best of both worlds. Unbelievable. And uh, you know what? Last question here. We'll wrap things up. I appreciate the amount of time you've given us. Um, sort of want to ask, you know, what are to you over the last, we'll say 20 years or so, what are some of the most important developments in terms of pitching, how we evaluate pitching that have come to the forefront? Because it seems like things have rapidly changed even in, in five years, let alone the last 20. Well, again, uh, I used to define baseball as a game of failure coached by negative people in a misinformation environment. Now you're laughing at me. I think we've, we're past that. I think people are more open-minded about science and cross specifically using science and coaching and medical together to put a better product in front of the kids that are trying to develop skill and compete. We've learned that there's windows of trainability and it, it does no good to strength train a 12 year old because until testosterone shows up working on heavy muscles or big muscles doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. So in other words, without getting too crazy, it's available for anyone who has decided they are looking for a mo the most efficient way to train or show their athletes how to compete, it's out there. So um, it hasn't been an easy 20, 25 years, but it's been very productive. And we've learned that problem identification is half the solution. And I believe for the first time, especially in baseball, we've got more problems identified and more solutions out there than ever in the history of the game. And I feel truly blessed to be a part of it. But again, Jeff, I still think there's more to come. And as proud as I am of the people I've been working with and what we put out there, uh, keep your seatbelt fastened because we're just beginning the journey. Very good. And I uh, appreciate you for make, taking some time to join us today uh, and be the first guest on this podcast. Awesome. So much time your house. Jeff, I'll hang out with you anytime. Just let me know. Okay. For sure. Absolutely, man. Yeah, have, a, have a blessed day.
You too. Thanks a lot for joining me, man. You bet. Talk to you later. Yep. All right, listeners, a uh, very big thank you for tuning in. And of course, a huge thank you to Dr. Tom House for joining us in today's episode. Tune in next week. We'll be back with another special guest.